Hello and welcome to the Alcohol Problem Podcast. I'm Dr. James Morris, an alcohol researcher interested in harmful drinking and addiction issues. This stems in part from my own experiences, so the show aims to explore a range of lived and academic perspectives relating to the question of what really is an alcohol problem. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Sally Adams, a researcher at the University of Bath's Addiction and Mental Health Group, about the science and myths behind the dreaded after-effects, or as they're known, hangovers. So thanks so much, Sally, for uh, joining me on this episode. I'll just start off by asking you what kind of got you into hangover research and, you know, what's the basic sort of scientific idea or definition of a hangover? I actually wrote a blog for Susie Gage when she was writing for The Guardian and uh, it was timed for Christmas. And so I wrote this blog and I realised there was so little research in this area, but also the quality was quite dubious. But also, I guess one of the main things is why do we continue to do something when we know that the consequences are so negative and so aversive? Why isn't this a real deterrent to us in engaging this behaviour? Um, You know, that whole, I'm never drinking again, but somehow you find yourself doing that. And I find that, you know, as a psychologist, a behaviour that makes you feel sick or actually makes you physically sick should be so aversive that you don't repeat it. So to me, that's fascinating. And in terms of what we know scientifically, um, it's taken a really long time to arrive at a definition that researchers are comfortable with. But essentially, it's a combination of physical and psychological symptoms that are experienced after a single episode of drinking. Really, when you're, the concentration of alcohol in your blood is approaching zero. So it's the time when really we would all think, I'm safe to drive a car. I'm safe to go to work. This is actually when hangover starts. And I think it is important that we've included psychological symptoms, as I think these can be some of the most harrowing symptoms of a hangover. Oh, absolutely. Uh, There's huge, huge questions in there about, you know, why do we do what we do? And hangover seems like a really interesting area to explore that. But I suppose one of the big challenges, surely, in researching this is, you know, the individual variability. As you say, you know, the psychological aspects of it. I know for me, headaches terrify me of even relatively small amounts of red wine or something, but rarely feel the sort of physical side effects, I don't think. Yeah, I think it's huge. One of the biggest problems is individual variations. So quite often when we do research, we have to compare an individual's hangover to their state for whatever is normal to them. And that seems the best way of being able to control for that. But there are differences even between males and females in report of hangover and severity. But there also seems to be some genetic differences. We inherit some of our ability to metabolize alcohol, but also genetic factors do account for some experience of hangover frequency and how susceptible we are. That's fascinating. And can you maybe unpick that a bit? So is it to do with the amount of enzymes you have in your liver and how well they break down alcohol? Is that the kind of mechanism that genetics might influence in terms of how much we might experience hangovers? Yes. When we're metabolizing alcohol, we convert it into something called acetaldehyde, which is actually toxic to humans. Um, It's actually responsible, we think, 
for a lot of the negative effects we see the next day. So the sweating, the palpitations, nausea and vomiting. But the way that we, some of the genes that are involved in the metabolism of alcohol to acetylaldehyde, we have genetic variations that can increase that metabolism or slow it down. So different variants of the gene. It's worth saying I'm not a geneticist if, if anyone's listening and thinking this isn't quite right. But the idea is that sometimes we see... Um, People with a certain variant of, of these genes, they experience negative effects of alcohol quite immediately. They get flushing. They feel very sick after a very small amount of alcohol. It's sort of like they're getting the hangover before they've even finished drinking. And that's the certain populations. I think East Asian is where the, that's kind of more common. Yes. And, um, and that was a real protective factor against developing an alcohol use disorder or an alcohol problem because it's so aversive. Um, but other people can be categorized as something called low responders. And therefore, you know, even a large amount of alcohol doesn't necessarily affect them in the same way as someone else. So they need to use more of the alcohol to experience not only the rewarding effects, you know, but also the metabolism is different. So are those the people, the low responders in sort of scientific terms who might be regarded as having a kind of hangover immunity? It's really complicated and no one really understands this hangover immunity. It's a very um, new concept and so little research has been done on it. So I think there was a study in about 2008 said about 25% of drinkers are hangover immune. But actually, if you look back at the actual data, it showed that most of the people in that study, they were administered alcohol in a laboratory. It wasn't in a normal setting. And their blood alcohol concentration didn't really achieve a level that we might expect people to have a hangover at. And this was sort of backed up by another study that was conducted in Holland with around 5,000 participants. And they found uh, when they asked people to sort of self-report what was their heaviest drinking episode in the last month and whether they'd had a hangover, it found that um, the higher the estimated amount of alcohol, um, it was less likely that they could claim hangover immunity. So we just don't have the evidence to support this. But uh, from a sort of personal anecdotal point of view, I am convinced that I have some friends who consistently show an ability to drink far more than I could ever get away with or would want to get away with and wake up the next day and carry on almost as normal. Um, I mean, obviously, that might be, for instance, because they drink more regularly and they've developed more tolerance. But just even from a headache point of view, even when I was drinking very heavily, I would still get always this piercing headache um, that I don't see in a lot of other people. Yeah, I think you're right. I think tolerance is definitely one factor that I would consider in that if you're someone who drinks quite infrequently, you know, and then you go to an office Christmas party and there's not any, um, there's not very much research on this, but I think the idea that you have some sort of tolerance to the effects, the next day effects must be a thing. But also I think it's about what you expect to happen as well, I think, and also how you cope with it as well. So I think sometimes, because there's not good evidence for this immunity at all, and it seems to suggest that people who are claiming immunity just haven't really drank enough, it may be the way that they cope with these symptoms. Maybe they're able to tolerate it and put it to the back of their mind, or they've expected that that's what's going to happen. And that influences the way that they feel the next day. 
So mind over matter, maybe. Um, I mean, what about what kind of happens, though, when you get a headache? I heard once on a podcast that it was sort of the brain almost dehydrated and that was somehow kind of stretching the neurons or something, you know, absurd, I'm sure. But, you know, is there any evidence at all that says why does alcohol induce headaches? The problem with hangover is, and I think the reason why we don't have any good evidence is you obviously the the main thing we often talk about is that uh hangover causes dehydration which then leads to headaches and that's a really tiny part of the puzzle and the more that i've read the reason why we're kind of no closer to understanding or finding a cure is because we really still don't understand what the mechanisms are that underlie the way that alcohol makes us feel the next day. So you're right, one of the main things is dehydration. Um, alcohol's a diuretic and obviously we also lose fluids to being sick or sweating when we're in a hangover. Um, but also it's an inflammatory response. So we see that there's inflammation in the stomach and the small intestine. Also, your body's working really hard to metabolize this acetylaldehyde. It also affects your blood sugar. So it's having an effect on your glucose production. It also affects the way that you sleep. Um, so it's so multifaceted that we, we just don't understand really the way that these different effects interplay in order to cause this I mean, before we had that fully established combination of psychological and physical definition, I think one of the actual scientific definitions was it's a general state of misery. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that certainly makes it a bit more easier to start make sense of in a way, doesn't it? Because, you know, I'm sort of thinking, well, it's unbelievable that we don't have more understanding about what causes hangovers and, and what the mechanisms are. But yeah, when you put it in that way, it, it really does sort of reinforce, you know, what we know about alcohol is what's often called a really messy or dirty drug. The way it just sort of affects so many different parts of the body in so many different interacting ways. Then when you put it like that, it, I do sort of forgive the scientific community a bit more for not having <laughs> understood this quite yet. Um, so we talked a bit about the sort of some of the biological factors, some of the question marks around some of the other mechanisms. I mean, obviously, there's the practical stuff as well, like how quickly you drink might, for some people, affect it more. But the types of drinks, that's just a myth, isn't it? Is it it's alcohol or are there things like congeners? Or is it, again, we don't have good evidence? It's also... Um disappointing to often say that we don't know in the hangover research um, and we're trying so hard to progress these studies but it is difficult to encourage people to come to a lab when they're hungover and also quite difficult to have research in this area funded. Have you tried luring them with bacon sandwiches and fry-ups that kind of stuff? That's actually so funny I have written breakfast in advance before saying we can't expect these people to come and do hours of cognitive testing and not feed them. But yeah, you're right. I think amount of alcohol is obviously a fairly obvious one where we talk about the more alcohol you consume, the more likely you are to have a hangover. And I think that's undeniable. Um, but you talked about congeners, which are essentially they're just like another biologically active compounds that people add to make drinks taste in a certain way, smell or look in a certain way. Um, they're added normally when people are fermenting alcohol. And so beverages that have got a higher pure ethanol, so that's the sort of active part of alcohol, drinks such as gin and vodka, they have less of these congeners. And then things like brandy, red wine, darker drinks have more of these congeners. 
And there is a very small, but and also an old and unsupported area of research that suggests that having more of these congeners, so in these dark drinks, leads to higher self-report of hangover symptoms. But that's been found that it affects the way that people report how they feel. But when it comes to sort of more objective tests of how people are performing on everyday tasks, the amount of congeners didn't impact that kind of objective performance, but did influence their self-report. So there, there might be this kind of expectation, you know, all the myths that we have, you know, that gin makes you feel sad and that certain beers make you aggressive. I think a lot of this is expectation. That's really interesting because, you know, myself as a researcher, you know, I'm very aware of the expectancies and beliefs as influencing uh, you know, people, and I'm always trying to convince people that no, certain drinks don't make you behave in this certain way. But I still find it personally hard not to convince myself that I might not be more sensitive to dark drinks and that, that I'm going to have less chance of a headache if I have a couple of gin and tonics versus a few whiskies. Yeah. And it's, it's not that that doesn't exist. It just might be that there's not enough good quality evidence. Um, there was a more recent study in the last couple of years that looked at that whole, um, Wine before, um, Beer before wine makes you feel fine. Yeah, the the order of drinks, uh, and that found there was there was absolutely no difference in whether participants had drank wine before beer or beer before wine. It was just about the amount of alcohol really that influenced hangover the next day. But I think it's still something worth exploring and um, get some really nice, robust data on this would be really, really helpful. We've obviously got to talk about hangover cures. Um, I mean, these are all myths, right? Other than sort of staying hydrated as much as possible, maybe before, during and after these kind of adverts that I've seen on social media. These are fraudulent, aren't they? It's such an interesting area. And the more I go to conferences, the more I see that there are people who are very keen to monopolize on <laughs> this area. And who wouldn't? Because I imagine if you can find an effective hangover cure, it's a billion dollar industry. I would say as a researcher that I haven't really seen any convincing evidence that there is a, in inverted commas, hangover cure. There was a really nice review in 2005, which was backed up by a review in 2010 that said, you know, in a review of the evidence of both sort of alternative products, but also pharmaceutical medicines, um, that there was no convincing evidence that any of these prevented or treated hangover. But then again, I find this unsurprising given that we don't understand all of the mechanisms that underlie hangover. So as I mentioned just now, we know that there's dehydration, we know that people are sick, we know there's poor sleep, inflammation, you know, imagining that you can develop something that's going to target all of those different underlying mechanisms is a very difficult job. Um, so at the moment, I would say the only thing that we can do is treat these different elements. Because people often ask me, what do I do when I get a hangover? And Because I should know, I guess. Um, what do you say? Um, <laughs> that's, that's what I do say. I, I said, I think it's unreasonable to expect that you'll find anything that will, you know, completely rid you of your hangover. 
hangover, but you can do sensible things to treat the symptoms. So you can drink water to fight your dehydration. Um, electrolyte um, imbalance is a big part. So sometimes those um, sachets that you take after you've uh, had diarrhea, people swear by those. Something to reduce inflammation, so an anti-inflammatory drug. Um, just thinking of all the different aspects that you could individually treat. But on the whole, I think it's difficult. But I think you hit on a really interesting point about how ethical it is to kind of promote these kind of cures if they if they don't really work. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think you've you've answered that really well. In that, I was, as you said, you know, the scientific consensus can't really identify or is very in early stages of understanding the mechanisms. Then, how can you have a kind of scientifically, you know, legitimate cure as uh, sort of in inverted commas? Unless, of course, there's been some sort of private investment in you know intensive hangover research that seems hugely unlikely. But yeah, I think goes back to that point about the power of these kind of psychological beliefs and expectancies that if you're buying or even are taking, you know, an ibuprofen or whatever, it's very hard, isn't it, to separate the belief that this is going to help you from any actual kind of uh, mechanism that might be taking place. Absolutely. I mean, it's an age old problem in in uh, pharmaceutical research that, you know, you have to show that what you're giving people is better than placebo or nothing. The expectation that this is going to be a wonder cure can be very powerful. I think uh, one thing that I wanted to mention was that the approach that Germany's recently took. Um, so there was a court ruling in the last couple of years that they've declared that hangover is an illness. And therefore, because of this, any products that kind of claim that they can alleviate symptoms, they have been ruled as illegal you can't you can't say that something works if it doesn't and even the FDA in the US they've got a similar ruling that these claims cannot make products that they will cure hangover if they don't <laughs> Well, that, that seems rather sensible, but I suppose it just comes down to politics to what extent you believe these sort of markets should be regulated or people can kind of choose to buy so-called cures and supplements for anything and everything. But um, yeah, we won't, won't go on to that perhaps. No, absolutely. You're right. It's bigger, a part of a much bigger idea about whether things that people can buy over the counter do, um, do actually work or whether they just make people feel like they're doing something or yeah. have this expectation that they'll work. Yeah, because um, I guess placebo effect is, you know, again, it's a big, big whole other, other debate <laughs> about to what extent is it useful to be able to tap into. Um, and just, we kind of touched on it earlier, but and I think, you know, the, the evidence just really isn't clear then. But in terms of the development of alcohol problems, it makes sense that if you are more susceptible to hangovers, which again, we don't really know about, then it would potentially act as a bit of a break on how much you might drink or how regularly you might drink. But of course, in combination with a whole load of other factors. But there has been a little bit of research, hasn't there, about relationship between sort of self-reported hangover and alcohol problems or dependency? Yeah. So on one hand, you have that genetic research that suggests that these genes that uh, or genetic variants that control the metabolism of alcohol uh, might act to disincentivize drinking. So as I mentioned, if you experience these negative effects very quickly, then you might be put off from drinking excessively and then therefore not having a hangover. But there's a lot of evidence to suggest the opposite as well, that actually having frequent or you know, severe hangovers actually aren't a very good deterrent at all. And I think, you know, anecdotally, 
before we even move on to the evidence, it's you know, like I said, we've all said, I'm never doing this again. You have the worst hangover. You could be on your knees hugging the toilet and saying, I did this to myself. I'm never going to do this again. The likelihood that you won't is very low. <laughs> I mean, I yeah, I relate to that. You know, I uh, late teens and early 20s, I was drinking very heavily and experiencing, you know, what felt like devastating hangovers. One, I think, lasted three days, uh, you know, if I, if I kind of um, was right in my appraisal. But, you know, at that time, my drinking motives and all the other stuff going on in terms of, I suppose, my mental well-being and, and those kind of things were so different from where I am now that now just even a sort of slight hangover is quite a powerful motivator for me because it would interfere with playing golf or you know work outcomes or whatever whereas back then you know just didn't think about any of those things and I had all this kind of other stuff that was a really powerful driver for you know getting wasted as it as it was so yeah I guess it varies over the life course as well. Absolutely. We, we published a qualitative paper, um, that looked at hangovers in young people, really university students. And for them, hangover wasn't really a deterrent at all because it was seen as part of the drinking experience, sharing funny stories the next day. All suffering together was actually the title of the paper. Um, I think it came from one of our quotes in our interviews. But yeah, it does change significantly throughout the, the life course. But I guess going back to this idea of link with problem drinking, it seems to be the opposite that you would expect in that having more frequent and severe hangovers can be, you know, it looks like it might be a marker for the development of alcohol use disorders, but also bi-directionally that people with a family history of alcohol dependence, so perhaps a mother or a father that was had um, a drinking problem, this seems to predict hangover frequency and severity in the offspring, which I find really fascinating yeah how can we make sense of that i don't you know what this doesn't seem obvious to me in terms of the way in which that works i mean other than the genetics the one way that it might work is i don't know if you've heard of the opponent process theory no um so if these people um they have family risk already for um alcohol use disorders and they're experiencing more frequent and they're more severe hangovers, which suggests that they are drinking more. It might suggest that people are using alcohol to maybe escape these uh, negative states of hangover. So where you get locked into this sort of vicious cycle. So you might be drinking for, especially when you're younger, you might be drinking for lots of reasons that are social, you know, contextual, and you drink heavily, you experience these very frequent and severe hangovers. And then the time to next drinking might be very quick because you're trying to avoid these, chase away these negative symptoms. So it really is a vicious cycle. So a, a kind of more complex interpretation of hair of the dog, if you like. Yeah. I'm fascinated by that. There's so little research, but I'm, I'm really interested in what sort of switches from, you know, I've got a terrible hangover and I just want to get over it. And maybe I want to have a break before I drink again. You know, I don't want to be in this situation to, you know, the best way to get over this would be to just drink again or that the hangover is so severe or so punishing that the own, <laughs> the kind of only quick fix way is to get to drink again as soon as possible. Interesting. It sounds like those that research is amongst people with much higher severity alcohol problems rather than perhaps a bigger population of people who maybe, you know, might expect to have a hangover 
once or twice on the weekend um and you know just kind of wait until the next weekend before i have to deal with it again rather less likely to maybe use hair of the dog but difficult to say yeah i think i think you know i still think we talk about young people but i'm also interested in sort of that mid group i guess within my age group is what you know i'm sort of in my late 30s um you know that idea of you know going out on a friday night but then maybe doing a brunch the next day it doesn't look like hair of the dog but it doesn't mean that it's not and i think this life course approach is really important because i think the way we feel about alcohol in general, but also hangover, I think is so important at the moment with the lockdown and the pandemic, because most of us don't have the responsibility of having to drive to work or going to work. And I am interested to know whether we may see it as a bit more acceptable to have a hangover and get away with it when we're not having to deal with people or engage in our everyday responsibilities absolutely it's it's going to be you know we're going to be trying to answer these questions for years to come what's the impact been on terms of drinking behaviors and you know as as we know the sort of emerging data is starting to tell us that perhaps a lot of kind of lower risk more infrequent drinkers are drinking the same or less but mm-hmm. the heavier drinkers the people where we're likely to see more extreme hangovers and all those complicating factors uh you know many of them are drinking more yeah because you don't have that barrier in place where most people I imagine (laughs) I imagine I do this myself like I have a rule where I don't really drink in the week because the thought of having to give a lecture hungover or do my job hungover is just totally not worth it but just you know the idea that actually I probably can have a drink in the week I haven't got to get up I haven't got to see anybody that's really interesting because I was I was going to ask you just to con- kind of conclude, you know, how does this insight and understanding into the ways in which hangovers kind of a thought to work, at least, how does that affect your own appraisal of drinking? Because um, it's one part of it, but certainly, you know, for me, I tend not to drink in the week because I'm worried about the risk of psychological dependency, at least, probably more so than I'm worried about feeling a little bit hungover the next day because I wouldn't generally drink quite enough personally to feel hungover certainly not in the week but yeah how does it how does it sort of factor into how you think about alcohol use I'm very in tuned to my own alcohol use I would say good <laughs> and I'm, I'm very in tune to when I think I'm you know perhaps drinking too much and definitely was guilty of that a little bit in lockdown um of sort of the the drink was coming a little bit earlier so maybe mm. on a Thursday or a Wednesday rather than the weekend I am conscious of how it impacts you know, things that I have to do, my job, but I'm also very not wanting to ever it to be something that I get out of control with. Um, and I think the importance of having alcohol free days is something I've always, you know, done. Um, but I think, you know, just telling people to, you know, oh, you won't have a hangover if you drink in moderation. I know it's not that easy, particularly when stressful things are happening or, in our culture, we, we drink for everything. We drink to reward ourselves. We drink to uh, condole ourselves. We drink because it's Thursday or Friday. And it can be really difficult to kind of keep tab on it, really. And uh, the whole of this year, I have used an app to kind of look at my drinking. So I've recorded my drinking every day this year. And it's been really interesting. And I think it does help you think about what your relationship is and which are the drinks that you enjoy the most or which are the ones you think, mm, maybe I could go without that one. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm as a researcher, 
I'm, I'm very in tuned to my own drinking and probably everyone else's probably makes me really boring at parties yeah well, ditto <laughs> well as I suppose as long as it's not judgmental or you don't just talk about it no. all the time you <laughs> hang on to your friends but yeah absolutely I think um you know it might be what's called mindful drinking you know there's this movement about not necessarily just being alcohol free or whatever but being more mindful about how much you drink and counting units or at least keeping a rough track of it can be a really helpful or important strategy for kind of doing so but I do think hangover is so interesting because it is the one really very obvious marker of the negative effects of alcohol use whereas so much more of the risks and the public health messages which could argue don't really work in most cases are based on these longer term or less tangible kind of outcomes and certainly again when I was drinking really heavily all I'd factor in is well I'm going to feel really rough but that's it but no in no way would I ever consider even the behavioural consequences. Um, but again, a lot of that was, again, as you said, about social context and the camaraderie and all that kind of stuff that went along with it. But I do think hangovers are, you know, it's fascinating from that psychological point of view of how people factor into their decision and assessment of their own drinking as either kind of on a spectrum of being, you know, problematic in some way if it's causing hangovers. Yeah, I think it's um I think it's a really missed trick that we aren't looking at it more as something to base intervention on or just to increase awareness. So the one thing that really fascinates me and is definitely very personal to me is the anxiety. Anxiety, as it gets called. Yes. Um, you know, I've done a couple of research studies on this, but I'm keen to explore further. So one of the things that really puts me off is the experience of anxiety the next day. It's just so um, this fear of what I've said or what I've done, but also just a general underlying anxiety. And I think the idea of these kind of psychological consequences. So a lot of my other research has looked at our brain doesn't seem to work very well the way it doesn't when we're drunk. So things like, you know, um, reaction times, uh, making decisions, reacting to things, our attention, these all still to be, seem to be really impaired the next day. And this is even when you would pass a breathalyzer. Um, if you were in a car, but these are obvious processes that you use when driving a car or going to work. And also this idea of anxiety and the way that it makes you feel and the way that you interact with other people. That's the bit that I'm most keen to, you know, when people say to me, what do you want to achieve from your research? It would be that there's greater consideration of just how much of the effects of alcohol carry over into hangover and how we might not know that, but that they might lead us to make choices about when we drink next. I think that's really important. So especially with the anxiety thing, I always think, you know, I feel very anxious the next day. And then someone might say, you know, do you want to come out for a Sunday brunch or a Sunday lunch? And you know that probably having a glass of wine would probably would make you feel less anxious but in the long run you get into this vicious cycle so I find that fascinating. So that really makes what you're saying earlier a lot more sense it's not just about hair of the dog it, it's about you know even on a maybe subconscious level you know you might feel a bit sort of anxious and and that a drink kind of calms you down because you know, as, I, as I've said before I enjoy a drink because I notice that it certainly feels like having a drink alleviate still a kind of mild level of anxiety I, I mean that's part of the pharmacological effect of the drug alcohol is that it can alleviate anxiety but of course the homeostatic response is then that it's sort of thrown out of balance to use a is that, I don't know an accurate kind of response in terms of when the hangover kicks in yeah like a rebound effect and yeah 
The one thing that, I mean, I've done a lot of kind of public engagement work and given talks in pubs. And one of the best things that I always get from those is a perspective that even though I am a drinker, sometimes I can step away from that when I'm in my research shoes. And people often say to me, oh, it's really interesting you're talking about the harms and all of these things, but you're forgetting why I drink in the first place. It's because it really relieves my stress and I feel relaxed and it makes me feel nice and it's pleasurable. And I think I always try to not forget that in my research. And we have to think about why people use alcohol in the first place or any drug, really. It's because it does have this euphoric or pleasurable effect. And that, that's a really important part of understanding why people use alcohol. And it's important in, in the hangover too. Absolutely. And, you know, people don't like being told what to do if it's kind of with a finger wagging approach, or they don't like being told what they already know, which is, I like drinking and it makes me feel rough if I do it a bit too much. So yeah, we have to be a bit more kind of nuanced in, in the ways in which we kind of have these discussions, I think. And it's been brilliant to have you on and you've explained so well how complex uh, this kind of area is. And again, how kind of complicated alcohol is both in terms of its pharmacological and psychological and all the other kind of aspects and ways it affects us. So thanks so much, Sally. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Alcohol Problem Podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Alcohol Podcast, so please feel free to follow us or get in touch there. <laughs>